Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. I understand the feelings of, the, of these victims and their families, and I am deeply sorry for the pain and the loss and the suffering of those victims and, and their families. Boris Johnson, and in front of the COVID inquiry this week. Though I am to the hundreds of thousands of healthcare workers and many other public servants people in all walks of life who helped to protect our country. Johnson had spent many months preparing for that moment. And as part of that preparation, he had to watch and endure former close ally after former close ally criticising his response to the pandemic. It was the wrong crisis for this Prime Minister's skill set. Pretty much everyone called him the trolley, yeah. Many of the key decisions were being made by Mr Cummings and not the Prime Minister. He did struggle with some of the concepts and we did need to repeat them often. Boris Johnson's heavily trailed apology was followed with a forthright defence. It was a unique situation, he said, which no one involved had ever experienced before. The advice he received, he said, changed dramatically over those early days and weeks. He had, he said, competing pressures to consider. Ultimately, he said, he got the big calls right. I think that it's a general sense of sorrow that this has happened, but not necessarily I'm sorry for my specific role in any of this. This is Cleo Watson, a former advisor to Boris Johnson in 10 Downing Street, discussing his decision to apologise. I don't think he had any alternative, really, but there was nothing else to do. If you're trying to draw a line under something and to stop COVID being your legacy, the best thing to do is try to apologise and move on. Recording this podcast on Thursday afternoon, with Boris Johnson still on the witness stand, it's a little bit early to see how that apology lands. Although it did make the top of every news bulletin, as he must have known it would. Boris Johnson has apologised at the COVID inquiry for the way the government handled the pandemic. Today at the COVID inquiry, he tried to limit the damage to his reputation. As we heard, the former Prime Minister began giving his evidence today by saying sorry to bereaved families. But for many of those who lost loved ones to COVID, it wasn't enough. So will the apology serve its purpose? Will it help Boris Johnson's cause? Because a political apology is an art form, not a science. To pull one off, you need timing, precision and a lot of luck. Get it right and the world moves on, perhaps even with some forgiveness of your crimes. Get it wrong and you risk making things even worse. You could even be mocked. 
mercilessly for years to come. Look, it's 10 years later and I'm sitting here talking to you about Nick Clegg's apology. So did it work? In that sense, no. These things never do go away. I certainly shocked myself. So my instinct was immediately to apologise. You shouldn't actually misbehave, but of course the one thing you mustn't do is get caught misbehaving. The immediate follow-up question, well, if you really are sorry, why don't you resign? From Politico, I'm Maggie Chambray, and this week on Westminster Insider, I'm delving into the world of the political apology and asking, how can you redeem yourself when you've completely and utterly screwed up? It's a story from another age. The year is 1162. King Henry II has appointed his close friend Thomas Becket as Archbishop of Canterbury. Henry hoped Becket would be pliant in his new role, reliant as he was upon his patronage. But Becket was headstrong, a man of conviction, and he and the king clashed. They fought endlessly over law and religion and how the two intertwined. Eventually... Becket was convicted of various misdemeanours and fled in exile to France. On his return, King Henry supposedly uttered the immortal words, Will nobody rid me of this turbulent priest? The rest, as they say, is history. Becket was murdered in Canterbury Cathedral by a gang of sword-wielding knights. The brutal killing took place beside the altar itself, Blood and brains poured over the cathedral floor. The Catholic world was outraged. The king found himself under enormous public pressure. No one was in any doubt as to who was to blame. After some pressure from his inner circle, King Henry made a public apology and walked barefoot through the streets of Canterbury while being whipped by monks in an attempt to atone for his sins. Almost a thousand years later, our misbehaving politicians continue to offer public apologies in desperate efforts to save their skin. But somewhere along the way, sadly, they stopped being flogged by friars when they did something wrong. But the apologies, they kept coming thick and fast. I apologise for the fact that the intelligence we've received was was wrong. But of course I apologise if I've ever said anything that has been offensive. Well, I'm deeply sorry about all that's happened. That I am sorry and that I have made mistakes. And there's been one particular apology from over a decade ago, which even now is still well remembered in Westminster. We made a pledge, we didn't stick to it, and for that I am sorry. It was so famous, in fact, that someone turned it into a song. I'm sorry. Probably the most controversial thing we did was the decision to support the increase in tuition fees. This is Sean Kemp, former special advisor to Nick Clegg when he was deputy prime minister in the coalition government. Something that we had campaigned against a lot of them during the general election, stood with um, holding up signs saying we will vote to scrap tuition fees. And then when it came to it, did the opposite. We voted to triple tuition fees. That was, I think, seen as the totemic betrayal of the Liberal Democrats during the coalition years. Every interview he did, he was the first thing he was asked is, tuition fees, are you going to apologise? What do you say to the people who voted for you because of tuition fees? You dismiss it as the controversy, but the whole point was 
that what the Liberals were bringing into government was a commitment not to have tuition fees. Look, on the specific issue of tuition... And it was taking over everything that Nick did, every public appearance. And so it reached a point where Nick felt that if he didn't actually say, yes, of course I apologise for what we did over tuition fees and try to explain the reasons behind it, that he would always be asked that. Do you remember sort of any meetings leading up to it where people were arguing about whether or not it was a good idea to apologise? There are a number of meetings where it was discussed about whether we should do it, whether we shouldn't do it. The meetings were held in the Cabinet Office in a room that looked out onto Horse Guards Parade in Westminster. As they sat discussing their strategy, a marching brass band began practising outside the window. If you were to put this in a film about British politics, this would feel like absurdly on the nose. Um, so they always just had this slightly surreal like background music going on. It wasn't hours and hours of like furious argument and back and forth. I think some people said, I'm not quite sure. Are you sure about this? You know, does it open up a big can of worms? Is everyone going to ask you then to apologise for every other decision the coalition has made? But Nick, quite early on, I think, said, I'm going to do this. I think I have to do it. And so it turned into the practicalities of how you do it rather than is that the right or the wrong thing. He recorded, I think it was a YouTube video. I'd like to take this opportunity to put a few things straight. Explain about why he did country, it and said, I'm sorry. Um, with the idea being, in a sense, can that at least not put it bed as an issue? It's never going to go away as an issue. But would it at least mean the next time Nick did an interview, he wasn't spending the next first two minutes of it being pressed and pressed and pressed about whether he'd apologise? Because he could just say, I've already talked about that. I've already apologised and move on. And, and did it work? Yes and no. If you think that the original purpose of the apology was to stop Nick being asked if he's going to say sorry and to at least allow him to say I've addressed that I've said sorry I'm here to talk about Libya or whatever then it did work for that purpose did it help then rebuild and redress Nick Clegg's reputation no but no one really imagined that it would it served a particular purpose I think the problem with it beyond that is it kind of took on a life of its own look it's 10 years later and I'm sitting here talking to you about Nick Clegg's apology so did it work? In that sense, no. OK, so I reckon there are four different types of political apology. The first, the Nick Clegg, is the line in the sand apology. It's not always terribly sincere, but it's a calculation made by a politician who desperately wants to move on. Another in this category, with similarly unsuccessful consequences, was the one made by Theresa May after the 2017 general election. I take responsibility. I led the campaign. And I am sorry. She hoped this would allow her to govern for the rest of the five-year term. No such luck. The second type of political apology is way worse. It's the no-choice apology. What you did was so bad and has now been exposed so publicly, you literally have to say sorry. Remember this? I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Ex-US President Bill Clinton had spent months denying his affair with White House intern Monica Lewinsky. After a grand jury investigation, a Marilyn Monroe photo shoot and a load of recorded phone conversations, the affair was exposed and Clinton was left with no choice but to fess up. I misled people, including 
even my wife. I deeply regret that. Clinton is part of a pattern uh, that the instinct is to deny, that if you deny something for long enough, it will go away. This is Steve Richards, veteran political journalist and host of the podcast Rock and Roll Politics. And in today's never-ending 24-hour scrutiny of politics, these things never do go away. So in the end, Clinton was faced with the only option available to him, which was to admit to having some kind of affair with Monica Lewinsky. And you couldn't just leave it at that. The admission would not be enough without contrition. And so the apology was both an inevitable follow-up and a necessary one because it kind of cleared him from the nightmare. Not only there were all kinds of investigations and inquiries and so on, but it kind of uh, released him to do other stuff and to continue as president. And it is an example of where, having tried the pointless cover-up, the apology does have purpose and point. As a little-known backbench MP, Neil Parrish did not cause an international scandal nor trigger a major FBI investigation when he got caught misbehaving at work. But just like Bill Clinton, he too was forced into an apology after initially pretending to have done nothing wrong. Can you understand the upset that you might have caused? Of course I course I, I apologise for that. As you may recall, the former Tiverton and Honiton MP was caught last year watching pornography in the House of Commons chamber. Twice. I just plead, you know, it's no um, justification, but boredom, basically. I'd been into it once and I got in there accidentally. He had been trying to Google tractors, he says. I mean, look, he is a farmer by trade. But the second time I went in, I didn't go in accidentally, and that's why... I resigned, and the second time was when we were voting at 11.30 at night, and I was right on the corner uh, of the lobby, sitting in the, in the side benches. You see, I wasn't... It's an interesting... I mean, I suppose I was theoretically in the chamber of, of the House of Commons, but I think that, I think everybody thinks I was sort of watching it while PMQs were on or something. So it was between votes at 11.30... And did you feel guilty afterwards? Did you sort of realise that was inappropriate afterwards? Or was it only when you were caught that you thought, oh, God? Bit of, bit of both, I think, really. I'll be very open with you. Um, stupid to do in the first place. And um, I suppose in politics, the one thing you mustn't do uh, is, is, one, you shouldn't actually misbehave. But, of course, the one thing you mustn't do is get caught misbehaving either. So it's a combination. Parrish was caught on a Friday. Now, this was at the height of yet another conversation about the culture of sexual misconduct in Westminster. Parrish knew he was the as-yet unnamed MP. Well, then I went into denial, you see, and, and that was, you know, that was my own fault, really. The shock sort of took over. And so I, I just carried on for a day or two as though nothing had happened and it wasn't me. And so that was what sort of, in a way, made it worse during this time, he went on GB News and pontificated about the incident, not revealing that he was the man at the centre of it all. And just very finally, uh, Neil, while we've got you on uh, these reports, and we know your chief whip is looking into them, uh, what, what's your reaction to that? I mean, it's pretty jaw-dropping, the suggestion that it's happened. 
Uh, I mean, frankly, whoever it is, I mean, surely they would have to have the whip removed, wouldn't they? Yeah, I mean, I think the whip's office will do a thorough investigation and we will wait and see that result. And I think that yeah. was on uh, something like the Thursday. This is where I was in denial, you see. And, and, and so just sort of just sort of trying to, to, to will it away. And so therefore, you know, answered very inappropriately at the time. But, you know, I, I, so I, again, I don't justify what I did. But like I said, I, I did it um, because um, I was in denial. Finally, he was outed after four days of intense speculation. 24 hours after being unmasked, he publicly apologised and resigned. So is your decision based on an acknowledgement of wrongdoing? Yes, and I'll explain to you exactly what it is. Because I resigned speaking to the BBC, which is sort of perhaps in some ways a strange way of doing it, but it it was a very public thing I did, so I, I decided it was a very public way um, that I would resign. And of course, I had a lot of um, paparazzi uh, journalists outside the house and they were not going to get the story. That's for absolutely certain because they were just foul. And of course, you know, mainly men uh, and didn't necessarily watch pornography in the in the House of Commons, but I suspect they had watched it, don't you? I, g- I guess the difference is, obviously, it's a very different thing watching pornography in your home to watching it in, in the House of Commons. Absolutely, yes, absolutely, and I wouldn't, um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't deny that for one moment. And uh, what would you say to colleagues who make mistakes, or ex-colleagues, I suppose, that make mistakes? Would you encourage them to apologise and put their hands up? I, I, I would actually. I, I mean, it's up to them whether they resign, and it's up to them as to what they've done or whether they should resign. In some ways, it's much cleaner to go straight away because I think all you do is is, is drag it out and, and I don't I'm not sure it's any any better for, for yourself. The third kind of political apology is the genuine apology. The purest of them all. You've screwed up and you feel absolutely terrible and there's nothing else for it. Unlike the first two, this one is almost always accompanied by a resignation. I'm um Brooks Newmark. I was the Member of Parliament for Braintree and Minister of Civil Society, and I'm currently an academic at Oxford University. Brooks Newmark was a Tory MP for a decade between 2005 and 2015. He served as a whip and then a junior minister in the coalition government. But unfortunately for him, up until recently at least, Newmark is mainly remembered in Westminster for the Paisley pyjama incident. In 2014, he sent explicit photos of himself to a male journalist who was posing as a 20-year-old woman. The newspaper made much of the fact he was wearing a set of paisley pyjamas. In many ways, we're all flawed people and we're imperfect and there are things in our lives that emerge and sometimes our personal lives impact us in a public way. And that's certainly what happened uh, to me. Newmark apologised and resigned as a minister before the story even hit the front pages. At the time, you know, obviously the people I felt most awful about was my own family. And I think given um, everything that was made public, I felt it was important that I publicly also apologise because it wasn't just my family in the end that you sort of feel you've let down, but you've let down, in my case, my constituents and the people that had supported me. Although, I have to say at the time, I had a huge amount of support from my constituents. 
I guess I just want to ask kind of whether or not you ever considered not apologising and not resigning. No, no. I think um, I think at the time I was so I shocked. May may have shocked my friends, but I certainly shocked myself. And I knew I needed the. um, Well, first of all, obviously, I felt incredibly bad. Um, so my instinct was immediately to apologize, but it was hard to explain when I didn't even understand myself why I ended up doing something personally self-destructive. A year after his apology and resignation as a minister, Newmark stepped down as an MP and all but disappeared from public life. In the second half of this podcast, we'll hear more from him on what happened after his apology and how he has since attempted to turn his life around and redeem himself on the public stage. But before that, the fourth and final type of apology. This, of course, is the non-apology, the favourite of politicians, the I'm sorry that you're offended type apology. Now... I don't mean to brag, but I am actually a master of the I'm sorry but. I reckon anyone who grew up with loads of siblings gets good at that type of chat pretty quickly. Speaking of which... My former boss, Boris Johnson. This is Cleo Watson again, formerly Deputy Chief of Staff in Downing Street. He would apologise in a very specific way, where instead of just saying, I'm really sorry, he would say... I'm really sorry you're upset, which is the kind of thing that like ex-boyfriends have said. <laughs> I'm sorry you're overreacting, not I'm sorry that I've been an ass. I think it is interesting this week with the COVID inquiry, he's done quite a lot of apologising and sounding, I'd, I'd say, far more contrite than usual. He, he did sound sort of genuinely apologetic, but it's still... I apologise for the hurt that, you know, you feel from it. I I take responsibility for the government's actions in general, but I don't think he's held himself personally accountable for specific things. Maybe he meant to say, it keeps me up at night that I made these decisions or got these things wrong. I think a really important point as well is... He has got two quite different audiences. He has got the bereaved families and people suffering from long COVID. But, you know, he used to write for The Telegraph. He writes now for The Daily Mail. He used to be editor of The Spectator. And a lot of those readers are more kind of lockdown sceptic. In the category of I'm sorry, but, Watson also includes Matt Hancock's apology after he got caught breaking lockdown rules when cheating on his wife. And Liz Truss and Quasi Kwarteng's sort of apologies after their disastrous mini-budget. I accept responsibility for a turbulent time. I think we try to do too much uh, too quickly. And, uh, you know, Liz Truss and myself uh, paid, paid, paid the price for that. Well, we, and so did lots people of like Matt Hancock and Liz Truss and Quasi Kwarteng have been able to do a kind of half apology where, you know, they begin with, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, I regret that people are upset by this, but... I fell in love or the establishment was working against me or we felt that, you know, we had to do something radical with the economy because growth, growth, growth. So it's like flipping it onto something positive rather than just saying, I'm really sorry your mortgages have gone up or that I was hypocritical with my health advice. 
No matter which of the four type of political apologies you choose, it can be hard to get them right. Go too early and too fulsomely, and you risk taking the blame for absolutely everything. Do it too late, and like Nick Clegg, it will seem inadequate, insincere, and might even be mocked for years to come. But we shouldn't have made a promise we weren't absolutely sure we could deliver. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This calculation is surely why some politicians think it's better to stick their heads in the sand and refuse to apologise at all. In 2001, while out on the election campaign trail, Deputy Labour leader John Prescott punched a member of the public who'd thrown an egg at him. TV cameras captured the entire thing. As he walked through them, a local man chucked an egg at him almost at point-blank range. John Prescott immediately swung round and landed a punch straight on his jaw. The, the, the Prescott punch is an absolute classic of the misguided hunt for the apology. Steve Richards again. Uh, because when news first broke, you know, when Blair was Labour leader, that during an election campaign, Prescott had punched a voter, there was panic in those uh, easily panicked New Labour circles. But quite quickly, they recognised that quite a lot of voters were on the side of Prescott. And I think that if Prescott had had to issue a formal apology for punching a voter, if you think about it, the next sentence probably would have to be, and therefore I resign. It is unforgivable to punch a voter. I can't carry it on in public life. You know, such is the weight of the formal apology. Uh, but he more than got away with it. Voters thought, oh, you're good old John, you know, punching a voter. Sometimes it works to style it out. Sometimes it doesn't. I can understand that some people will argue that I should have stayed at my home in London throughout. I understand these views. I know the intense hardship and sacrifice that the entire country has had to go through. However, I respectfully disagree. Dominic Cummings tried desperately not to apologise after he broke lockdown rules to drive to Barnard Castle. He sat at a press conference in front of every political editor in the country and said, I believe I acted reasonably. Later, though, his personal polling plummeted. This was followed by a falling out with Boris Johnson, and soon after, he was forced to leave Downing Street. Almost exactly a year later, he finally apologised. Terrible mistake, which I'm extremely sorry about. For his handling of the incident. I should have called my wife and said, listen, you and... Um, you and our boy are going to have to get out of London again. I'm going to have to just explain the truth about this whole thing. Get out of London, we'll hold a press conference. I don't think he necessarily explained why he had gone north, which would have helped him quite a lot. Cleo Watson again. Like, I know him pretty well and it was not unusual for him to turn up on my doorstep in the middle of the night because people were putting stuff to his letterbox. Like, this, the security element of what was going on in his life at the time is perhaps a little bit overlooked. And for, for whatever reason, I think he was careful about talking about that publicly. I think he did understand why people were upset about it. And you can always have regrets about the event itself, but also about how you explained it to people, like how you presented it, how you like, perhaps apologised or explained it. And I think a lot of the rage came out of how it was kind of expressed to people as much as the event itself. 
For both Cummings and Prescott, you can see why they did not want to apologise. It would have led to... The immediate follow-up question from journalists tends to be, well, if, if you really are sorry, why don't you resign? And they don't want to resign. I think also they are very mindful of the sort of drubbing that Nick Clegg got when he did his apology over student fees 10 years ago, all that time ago. And it's just a shame that our kind of political culture is such that it's extremely hard to just own up for mistakes now. Watson uses herself as an example. She was fined by the police for attending those now famous Downing Street lockdown parties during the pandemic. But she only felt able to apologise after she had exited number 10. You can be really frank about, you know, your role in something, how much you regret something. And it basically feels good to say, I'm really sorry. Um, But obviously the follow-up question for me was not, will you resign from your job? Because I'd already been fired. (laughs) Quite often, it's actually an unfair question. Steve Richards. The term sorry sounds quite easy to utter, but actually if it implies that you are culpable for some terrible tragedy or calamity and you want to continue in public life, you can't utter it without a thousand qualifications surrounding that word sorry. They've certainly become more sought after as the kind of world of political journalism has expanded. Coming up... What happens after the apology? In the second half, we'll hear about politicians' attempts at redemption and ask whether they can actually work. I know people now look back and say, gosh, Brooks, you know, isn't this a great way to rehabilitate yourself? That wasn't my motive. My motive was like being a social justice warrior. Stay with us. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A message from Lloyds Banking Group. Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Every politician is obsessed with their legacy what they will be remembered for, who they'll be remembered by, and why. So, when a politician's career is cut short because of a scandal and a forced apology, they have to urgently make a new plan. After his resignation as health secretary, 
Matt Hancock flew to Australia to take part in the wildly popular reality TV show, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. As is customary on the show, he was forced to take part in a procession of humiliating tasks, some of them involving the intimate parts of a camel. Yeah. Just, just a tip. Just oh, marvellous. <laughs> and then think about it, Matt. he did it all again a few months later, being humiliated on a reality TV show really about the SAS. With all due respect, you're not a good-looking guy, are you? Pubes on your chest, moobs. He just seemed to lap it all up. The way I feel about Matt Hancock's like reality TV stuff. Nick Clegg's former advisor, Sean Kemp again. It reminded me a bit of... For people who watch Game of Thrones, there's an episode where like one of the characters finds herself having to like walk naked down the streets where everyone like shouts shame at her and like throws mud and worse at her. And it was almost like Matt Hancock's version of that, right? He, he he's gonna just publicly sort of debase himself and everyone can like vote for him to do these terrible tasks. And it was almost like he's being forced to go through a sort of like weird medieval public apology. Other paths are available. John Profumo, the former Defence Secretary who had to apologise and resign from government in 1963 after he lied about a notorious sex scandal, spent his post-politics life rather differently to Matt Hancock. For the 40 years after he left office, he was a tireless volunteer, washing plates and raising thousands of pounds for an East London charity. He was eventually awarded a CBE for his efforts. He never returned to public life. After the scandal surrounding Brooks Newmark, the former minister had to work out which path he wanted to take. I sort of went through a slight existential crisis because my entire, certainly that part of my career, you define yourself of, um, you know, what you are, not who you are. So I sort of disappeared, certainly for a good two and a half years. And I needed to sort of think through, you know, how did I end up where I ended up? And, you know, why did I end up um, screwing things up in a such as, which was a, ultimately a very self-destructive way. And what were you doing with your with your days? I was, uh, to be really honest, crying most of it. Yeah, it was awful. And um, I just couldn't understand how my life had fallen apart so much. And I was having um, massive anxiety attacks probably for a year and a half. So I'd wake up every day with these massive heart palpitations. And then, and I, rem- I, I remember the first time it didn't happen. So it, you'd want these anxiety attacks to stop and they couldn't do. And so I sort of wake up and then sometime between one and four in the afternoon, they would stop. And uh, it was about a year and a half. I think that, was, sorry, it, that would happen from the time you woke up until, until sort yeah. of six, seven yeah. hours later. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Anyway, I don't want to dwell too much on other than that was very tough. But then a lifeline. An old tutor suggested he return to Oxford University to begin a doctorate. This got him out of his flat and gave him a sense of purpose. And then last year, the war broke out in Ukraine and Newmark saw the opportunity to take up a new cause. I was more trying to rebuild myself and the war in Ukraine suddenly happened. And I was about to go on holiday, but I saw a friend of mine posted on Instagram. He had a bus on the border of Poland. And so I 
messaged him and I said, hey, can I come out and join you for four days uh, on the Polish border? And he said, sure. So I did. I went out there and um, the chaos was unbelievable. He heard people were struggling to get out of the war zone. He tracked down buses and drivers to go with him to rescue people from Kiev and Mariupol. The end of the year and a half, you know, I ended up evacuating about 35,000 women and children from the front line. And that was from a standing start, not knowing the country, not speaking the language or anything. Did, did you care about your image, your reputation, your legacy when you went to Ukraine? Um, no, Ukraine was, um, was, I don't know, was just a desire to do something. I was so angry. It was sort of this determination to help out and do do something. I know people now look back and say, gosh, Brooks, you know, isn't this a great way to rehabilitate yourself? That wasn't my motive. My motive was like being a social justice warrior. I don't know how to put this, but is part of you pleased that what happened 10 years ago happened so that you were able to do this? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly one thing I've learned at my stage in life that sometimes shit happens for a reason. It's hard to explain, but I'm much happier in my head than I ever was in my entire life. And I think if what happened to me hadn't happened, then it would have happened at a later stage. At some stage, I, you know, because of whatever issues I had had from childhood, um, eventually was going to percolate to the top uh, and break. You know, I could tell because my behavior was getting riskier and riskier that I was going to self-destruct at some stage. What kind of things do you mean by sort of getting riskier and riskier? In terms of my, you know, relationship behaviours and everything else, um, you know, that at the time I was, I was, I was sort of, I think I was just angry with everything. Final question. If you were able to give yourself a message in those sort of darker months when you were just sitting in your apartment, if you were able to give yourself a message now, a sort of past self, what would you say? What my closest friend said to me is true. It will pass. It will pass. So even though when you're in the middle of the storm, it seems like the end of the world, that's it's all in your mind. Everything is in your mind. The rest of the world's getting on with itself. The, the world is just, is just continuing on. That what you're seeing is all in your head. And that, uh, but you do need time. This thing, this cliche that time is a healer is very true. Neil Parrish, on the other hand, has tried a different sort of redemption on a reality TV show called Banged Up. Think of it as the Hancock route. What's your name, Borough? Yeah, Neil. What's that, your MP in that? It was. Not an so he's no, watching porn in that. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, right. You ain't got a missus in that. You ain't yeah, got a missus outside. Right. Yeah. You got a wife outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did she say about that? Well, she wasn't very happy. Yes, that's right. He voluntarily took himself off to a televised prison and shared a cell with a drug dealer. I think is a penance, and also it's um, it, believe it or not, it's you know in a bizarre way it's therapeutic as well. You see, because you're you're te- you're having to take yourself back through it. You don't die of shame, but you do have to live with it. And, uh, and I think, you know, quote me on that, because that, that takes some living with, really. You know, what you have got to remember is that, you know, as it, I don't know who said that, you know, all, all political careers end in disaster. Well, 
you know, they probably end. Um, very few blow them up quite so, so successfully and so quickly as I did. Um, but, you know, you do have to move on. And do you feel you've redeemed yourself overall? Um, it's getting there, I think, is the answer, Maggie. I think, I don't suppose I shall redeem myself with some people ever, will I? But um, I think with the majority, I think the general public have started to put in context of what I did. Very stupid, wrong place. Uh, but I, I don't think they believe I am uh, the worst sinner in Parliament. And so, therefore, I think, you know, there there is, yes, there's some redemption, I think. Um, and I think... Um, and what what do you do, um, Aggie? Do you? And I think I've been given a, by many a certain amount of credit um, for you know getting back on the horse and and, and trying to ride it again, um, albeit uh, a, a difficult horse. Neil Parrish might be back on the horse, but he is not allowed to stand again for Parliament as a Conservative candidate. An elderly farming friend of mine in Devon who, who's died now, but he said, "I I, I see you have a." a life sentence and um so i think that's quite appropriate with the with the banged up situation really and and are you considering running as an independent i am yes i mean i'm only considering it it's quite a a challenge isn't it to run as an independent in a general election it will be a family decision my wife you know put a lot of effort in coming up with to london with me for 14 years so i've got to respect her views as well as my own. And um, I think the one thing that it has done, hopefully, has made me a slightly more thoughtful person than I was before. And also perhaps take a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit more thought as to what my actions might be on other people. In politics, sometimes you just sort of bow on regardless. And I was a very determined politician um, and, and was quite a good one in my time. But it doesn't. I don't think it always altogether makes you perhaps the best person sometimes. For Nick Clegg, the general election result in 2015 would imply that his apology did not quite do the trick. We got absolutely sort of smashed. Sean Kemp again. I think the honest truth is the only thing that would have made people who were angry about Nick and the coalition, and Nick became a sort of iconic figure for almost like political betrayal, I think that's almost the only way the people could have, if you like, in inverted commas, forgiven Nick Clegg, is that Nick would have had to have taken it all on his shoulders and sort of resigned. So I think that's almost the only way Nick could have like assuaged a lot of people's anger is to resign. But I think that's then setting a bit of a standard about you better hope if you're the leader of a third party you never end up in, in a coalition deal because your political career will be finished two years later because that's the only way you can explain to people that you've had to, like, compromise on some things. So it's quite a difficult position. So you could have said sorry a million times, and I think all the people who have done would have said, yeah, yeah, poor old sad Nick Clegg, he keeps on saying sorry. Do apologies ever work on their own? Neil Parrish went on reality TV. Brooks Newmark went to Ukraine. Nick Clegg, well... Nick Clegg just tried desperately to cling on as Deputy Prime Minister before his party was crushed at the 2015 election. Their apologies were not enough to do the trick. But what of Boris Johnson's apology? Could it work? Boris Johnson says sorry and yet defends uh, most of his actions in relation to COVID. So what is the sorry 
four. Steve Richards again for the final thoughts. Boris Johnson needs the space to appear relatively humble and yet defiant in order to make a return possible. A return becomes impossible when you say, I am sorry that because of my actions, so many people died needlessly. And that kind of apology is not going to come from him and the equivalent apologies are not going to come from other leaders who want to remain active in politics with a reputation. So that's my guide to the art of the political apology. Before you make one, make sure to ask yourself who it's really for. The wronged party, the politician, the public, or simply the news agenda. And then cross your fingers and hope. Because there is a very small window open for a perfect apology. One that lets you keep your job and allows forgiveness and delivers redemption. And in politics, sometimes if you want to get away with something, like the Prescott Punch, it's better to not take the risk. Sorry if that's not the advice you're after. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Aggie Chambray. If you've enjoyed it, please spread the word, follow us, and maybe leave us a nice review. But before you go, there's a host of some other podcast here. Host of some other podcast, Aggie, you mean host of politics at Jack and Sam's, the uh, Sunday night guide to what's going on in British politics, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Took, took the words right oh, out of my mouth. Thank you, thank you. Aggie, that was such a cool episode. How did you get those guys to open up so much about these dark moments in their lives? I don't know. I just sort of sat here and talked to them. I actually genuinely got a bit emotional listening to Brooks talk. Neil Parrish, this is really raw. This was not long ago. Tell us about next week. Okay, so next week I have been looking into prisons for a little while now. So that's something me and Neil Parrish have in common. We've both spent time inside a prison. Uh, So I've gone to HMB High Down, which is in Surrey, spoken to some prisoners, the prison governor, and spoken to a lot of other people about what is going on in the prison system at the moment. It's a crisis, right? It's a crisis. Exactly, yes, it's a crisis. Basically, what the hell has happened and what can be done to fix it? All right, I'll look forward to hearing it. And you can hear me on Sunday night with Sam Coates of Sky News. Uh, Do tune in for that as well. Okay, great. My producers this week were Artemis Irvin and Robert Nicholson of Whistledown Productions. Here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my editor is Jack Blanchard. Hello. We'll be back next week. See you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.